Monday, March 22, 1 p.m. And you're here once again with Postal and Graincast for Monster Learning. The weather is not as bad as you would expect, though I have to say there's certainly some room for improvement. So if you're joining from other parts of the world, please, please send us some positive weather energy. As I have to say, you know, it starts getting to me. Last week, we traveled to Birmingham to catch a glimpse of Prof. Premier Yabore's fascinating world as we explored the realms of descriptive psychopathology. Yes, yes, we did talk about phenomenology as well. How could we not? I know that you heard me saying it again, but if you missed it, do yourself a favor and watch it on YouTube or listen on Spotify. Top quality. This week, we leave Birmingham behind and travel further up north to meet not a psychiatrist, not a psychologist, or any of the usual suspects, but a professor of sociology who dedicated his research in issues of inequality and social justice. Central to his work on ethnicity and race has been developing an understanding of the links between racism, socioeconomic equality, inequality, and health. And as we all know, this is far from an easy task. He's the founding and deputy director of the ESRC Center on Dynamics of Ethnicity. He's co-PI of the Synergy Collaborative Center, which is investigating ethnic inequalities in severe mental illness, and founding and co-director of the Manager Institute of Collaborative Research on Aging. But to be honest, most importantly, he's here with us to talk to us. Braincast people, this is Professor James Nasbrook. Rob, welcome to Braincast. Thank you, Paspo. I'm very pleased to be here. So, Prof, I know it's a bit cheeky of me to start with such a basic for a sociologist question, but I think it's a good opportunity to hear it from the expert. Because the truth is that we do get the basics wrong many times. So, can you please tell us what is ethnicity, what is race, and what is racism? Yeah, I, th I think it's crucially important actually to deal with the concepts that we're addressing and to have um, good definitions of the concepts that we're addressing and importantly to move away from uh, lay everyday understandings. You know, we do have everyday understandings of these things, but we actually should think carefully about how we're going to position them scientifically if we're going to address them. And the, as you've kind of said, the main object of my um, uh, research here is around racism and how racism impacts on the lives of people. So I'll start with racism and then I'll go to ethnicity and race. So I argue, uh, I use a, a fairly standard definition, of course, that the racism has its origins in ongoing, though historically determined and politically determined systems of domination. They serve to marginalize and inferiorize particular groups on the basis of their phenotypic, cultural, or symbolic characteristics. Crucially important then from my point of view is to, is to move from that broad definition to understand how racism operates to shape people's lives. And in my work, I argue that racism operates at three levels in our societies. One is structural racism, which shapes our access to resources. Another is institutional racism, 
that shapes our encounters with organizations and institutions that provide us with services. And the third is interpersonal racism, which shapes our encounters with individuals or the encounters between individuals. And I think it's important to focus on those, to have the broad definition of racism and to focus on those three dimensions in order to understand how racism shapes our lives and subsequently to intervene to try and make change. So that's obviously is a very difficult thing to do. And to answer your question, I mean, uh, I, I've kind of deviated a little bit, but to go back to uh, kind of concepts of ethnicity, race and so on, I think we can think of ethnicity as a form of collective identity, uh, a form of collective identity that draws on notions of our ancestry, our cultural locations, our geographical origins, and in terms of race, of course, you also then bring in the notion of shared physical features. And those physical features are really concentrated around a notion of colour and skin colour and skin colour difference and what goes with that. But I would argue that all of those dimensions are in some form symbolic. So that means that the boundaries between ethnic groups are symbolically represented. They're, they're, they're symbolic actions. Uh, we are the bearers of specific languages, specific religions, or specific cultures that form the boundaries between us. And we choose how we represent those um, in order to draw those boundaries. What does it mean in practice? So in practice, I, 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 I argue, as many other people do, that both race and ethnicity are discursively produced. They're social constructions. So what we do is we have a language that calls into being differences between groups and provides social significance to those differences. So these are the these are the boundaries that enable us to name and explain different ethnic groups on the basis of common sense assumptions around what is contained within those boundaries. So I know I'm going on a little bit. Can I just say a little bit more in relation to this? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So 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 what's important here though? What is absolutely crucial here, connecting it back to the notion of racism, is that these ideas are generated within historically framed structures of power and wealth. So being named as a member of a particular ethnic group, ascribing that identity to yourself or to others has material consequences. Has material consequences for people who are within an ethnic group and people who are excluded from an ethnic group. The way in which identities are perceived, how they're valued, how they're used, how we interact with them, are all shaped by the resources that we hold. And those resources are economic, cultural, legal, political, symbolic. And, the, and an additional crucial point here is that the symbolic carries with it emotion. So we have emotions that are attached to symbolic resources that are attached to ethnic identities. Emotions of fear, emotions of disgust, and so on. And what does this do? As these processes are enacted within our society, they then create a racial, what I call a racialized social order. So a racialized social order where these constructions of ethnicity and race are perceived to be inherent to groups, inherent to individuals within those groups, and then allow those groups to be hierarchically ordered according to how these characteristics are valued. So all of these things are crucially important in shaping our position in society. Sorry, I know that was a long answer, but hopefully it captures much of what um, uh, is there, what, 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 I, what I try and do my research around. 
to, to, to be honest, it's one of the few times, you know, that I, I don't regret, you know, stopping, uh, you know, one of the speakers. It was really amazing because, you know, I think that he managed to capture it like four minutes, like like really complex, really complex definition. Thank you very much for that. And, and, and Paul, you know, Ruth Hackett did a prospective study of ethnic minorities in the UK. Essentially, she asked nearly, not only her, obviously her team, 5,000 people from ethnic minority groups. Now, how they experience racism, but also the mental and physical health at baseline, and followed them up to two years later. Now, she found that one in five individuals from an ethnic minority group reported racial discrimination, and these individuals were more likely to develop poorer mental and physical health after this experience, suggesting that essentially racial discrimination is a chronic stressor that might bring about changes in stress-related even biology and stress-related health behaviors like, like excessive alcohol intake that can also on, a, on their own you know, lead you know, to poor health. So racism prof, is not just a moment, it's not just an isolated event of discrimination in time, but it does have, as you suggested already, some long-standing consequences. And it seems that it starts early you know, reading the Kala's amazing book, Natives, I have to say uncovered much of my ignorance in how embedded racism is in modern society. And at some point, while discussing about education, the differential way white teachers grade white and black pupils, he writes that if you're a black kid at school, you start from a disadvantaged position from the get-go. Adding that, you know, the really hard to digest, I have to say, fact that black children fall further behind the longer they stay at school, clearly implying racial bias. So is that so? Yes, yeah, so, so there's a number of things that, Cosplay, that you, you've raised. One is the impact of racism on our health. And it's very, very clear that racism has a direct impact on our health, both mental and physical. Um, that uh, we, we show this cross-sectionally, we show this longitudinally, we do assessments of the cumulative impact of racism, the more you experience, the worse the impact on your health, all fitting the criteria to suggest that there are strong causal processes going on. And you can also trace the biological effects of racism, which then link to the health effects of racism. So I think it's clear that those stress, those biological stress mechanisms are activated directly by experiences of racism um, and aggravated the more you experience. And also that the structural disadvantages that flow from racism. So structural racism impacts on your socioeconomic resources, which then impact on your biology and your health. That's absolutely true. Uh, I think the other point that we're making here about the um, penetration of racism into our society and how it shapes all of our encounters is, of course, crucially important. And the, and the kind of notion of uh, deteriorating, well, school is the example, that outcomes deteriorate the longer you're in school. I think there's a, a good set of evidence to show. I'm, I'm not an education researcher, but there is a good set of evidence to show that um, the differences on entry to school become amplified the longer you go into school and the advantage of some groups actually becomes decreased as they go through school. And you can think of the mechanisms that occur. One of them is the way in which you're treated by the institution. Um, but the other is the way you expect, you're expected to be treated by the institution. And so as you grow to learn more about what's happening to you, um, uh, the more you expect to fail. Uh, one of the things that we show is that people who are fearful of the experience of racism or believe that people might be racist to them, also have an impact on their health. And one of the other things that other researchers have shown is that as soon as children in school become aware of their race, 
that have a fall is deteriorates. So if teachers do things experimentally to signify someone's race, their performance decreases. And so there's a whole set of important things going on uh, here. Uh, absolutely. So prof, back in the 30s, the, the US federal government created maps of at least 200 cities. So they used racial composition and they literally they drew red lines around communities with large black populations, flagging them essentially as, as hazardous investment areas. And yeah. we all know how well this ended. Its consequences, yeah. I think it's, it can be felt even today. Now, in the 2018 Lancet public health paper showed that children coming from families in the lowest income showed disproportionately higher risks of self-harm and violent offending. And of course, your paper, we're using data from consecutive England and Wales censuses, you examine the intragenerational economic mobility of individuals with different ethnicities, religious and genders. Now, you show that despite the overall you know, variability, subsequent generations of ethnic minorities, including Black Caribbean, you know, Indian, Sikh and Muslim people, they've fared worse financially compared to their ancestors. Sounds to me that we, we may not be putting red lines in neighborhoods nowadays, but somehow we are. Yeah, so, so there's a number, number of issues here, but I'll focus on this kind of question of the persistence of um, uh, ethnic uh, disadvantage. And I think what the work that we've done and the work that other people have done, of course, um, shows that over time, ethnic inequalities are maintained. Now, there's some slight movement in one direction or another, but the overall picture is that since we've been recording robust data, ethnic inequalities have maintained, um, not necessarily in terms of education, but those educational advantages that some ethnic minority groups have faced have not really translated to employment advantages, and you need to think why that might be so. And as you say, there is a persistence over time and across generations of that employment um, uh, disadvantage. Uh, the other thing that we show, uh, which is perhaps even more worrying, is a persistence of experiences of racism over time. So racism experienced in the 1980s is not much different from the racism experienced now. Prejudice expressed in the 1980s is not much different from the levels of prejudice expressed now. And you kind of think of how our society has changed over this period. Um, the 1980s, National Front, um, uh, activism, uh, lots of racist violence, through to multiculturalism, through to anti-immigrant hostility, but a persistence of racism over that period uh, and a persistence of prejudice over that period is a really worrying thing alongside the persistence of ethnic inequalities. And the other thing, just to say very quickly, of course, is that we have seen legislative, legislative change over that period. And we have seen policy change over that period. And we have to ask ourselves why that hasn't been sufficient to make a difference. Mm -hmm. I think that's a crucial uh, question. And Paul, you know, the, the impact on people's mental health is undeniable. In 2017, Alice Egerton, in fact, showed that the striatal stress-induced dopamine release and dopamine synthesis capacity are elevated in migrants compared with non-migrants, suggesting an increased risk for psychosis. And on the same note, in a 2019 paper, you know, Christopher Halversuk, excuse me, my apologies, Christopher, if I mispronounce your name, so he writes that the risk for a diagnosis of non-affective and affective psychosis is particularly elevated for black ethnic groups and higher for all ethnic minority groups. Now, despite that, two recent papers, one by Vishal Bafsar and one by Darren Papadia, show that migrants and ethnic minorities make less use of the available services. So the question is, are there appropriate 
available services? And if so, why are people not using them? Yeah, so I think there are two things going on here. One is in relation to um, severe mental illness, um, the work that Christopher has, and others have done, uh, which basically shows a very high rates of diagnosis with a severe mental illness, but also very high rates of treatment under the Mental Health Act for a diagnosis of severe mental illness over and above the high rates of diagnosis. And those two things combined say something about the pathways into acute psychiatric care that, are, that is occurring for ethnic minority people. Uh, and that relates, I suspect, to the ways in which ethnic minority people are understood in our society as dangerous. Um, and then the ways in which we then uh, treat them. So cru crucial here, um, I think, is that some of the survey work that I have previously done suggests that that risk is high. So the dopamine findings probably are reflected in real rates of higher um, psychotic experience, but not the five or six times higher rates that we see in um, terms of diagnosis. Something is happening between the experience of symptoms and the point of diagnosis, and then from diagnosis to secure uh, treatment. And I would argue that there is some processes related to institutional racism at play here. Yeah. And then institutional racism in, really, in a very different way in terms of uh, Domi Kapadia's work, where she basically finds um, uh, that for ethnic, so she focuses on ethnic minority women in her research, and she finds that um, ethnic minority women, um, particularly Pakistani and Bangladeshi women, um, make good use of primary care and go and talk about their symptoms in primary care, but then they don't get on to specialist services. And so the question is why? Is that partly because they have other resources uh, that they can draw on, social networks and so on? Or is it partly because those services aren't attuned to the needs of those groups of women? And I think both are at play here, of course. And the second one is, again, raises the concern about um, institutional racism in the terms of the way services are set up. And so there are two issues here. It's services that are set up to aggressively treat people who are perceived to be dangerous and services that ignore people who have uh, real needs around um, uh, affective uh, disorders. And Prof, since, since we touched on services, let's talk about NHS. Now, in a powerful letter to the BMJ this February, titled Tackling Racism in the NHS, Dr. Nisha Agrawal highlights that only 7% of the very senior managers in the NHS are from an ethnic minority. Now, contrast that to Tim Cook's and Simon Lennon's research, where they looked into the deaths of NHS staff early on in the pandemic, and they found that approximately 63% COVID-19 related deaths of NHS workers were in people from ethnic minority groups, despite this group only accounting for 21% of the NHS workforce. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, so that roughly calculated as a three times greater risk, of course, uh, of mortality for ethnic minority NHS workers. And the initial statistic you started off with, the number of senior managers that are present, kind of points to the location of ethnic minority NHS workers lower down in the occupational hierarchy. Uh, so there's a question outside of the NHS, which is partly outside of the NHS, which is about the socioeconomic position of ethnic minority workers and whether that increases their risk. But also a crucial question as to why ethnic minority workers are at that lower and those lower positions. And then the question of exposure. Um, so people die from COVID-19, of course, because they're vulnerable, perhaps because of socioeconomic conditions, perhaps because of comorbidities, but they need to be exposed in the first place. And so then there's a question of whether ethnic minority workers were more likely, ethnic minority NHS workers were more likely to be 
in positions where they were exposed to the virus. And that then relates to questions of who's asked to do which kinds of shifts, which kinds of environments are they asked to work in, and then whether they had access to PPE in the early days of uh, the pandemic. And there's, I was going to say anecdotal, it's a bit more than anecdotal evidence to suggest that all of those things were at play. Uh, that ethnic minority workers were asked to work in more dangerous areas uh, and that ethnic minority workers were less likely to have access to good PPE. Semi-anecdotal evidence. So let's bring in some controversy. Back in the 1800s, the Southern physician Samuel Cartwright described drug pathomania, a mental illness that he claimed caused enslaved Africans to run away from their confinement. And he argued that it could be prevented by keeping black people in submission and could be cured by whippings. So fast forward to 2016, and a study by Kelly Hoffman, published in the highly prestigious, I have to say, PINAS, assess racial attitudes. So half of white medical students and residents held unfounded beliefs about intrinsic biologic differences between black people and white people. And these false beliefs were associated with assessments of black patients' pain as being less severe than that of white patients and with less appropriate treatment decisions for black patients. So how complicit do you think has science been in perpetuating inequalities? Um, so so I, I think much of what I would uh, describe as our lay understandings of race and ethnic differences is driven by uninformed scientific research that is pursuing hypotheses from these common sense everyday understandings of what it is to be a race or an ethnic group. So you start off with a position of finding out that some ethnic group is at higher risk of a disease. Um, I'll come back to the definition of disease in a minute, but at higher risk of a disease. And then you immediately make assumptions about what it is about racial and ethnic characteristics that lead to that explanation. And so, and then, and then you absorb a set of um, stereotypes into your treatment choices. Uh, and so the pain one is a classic one. We know that um, patients with sickle cell disease are often treated badly on the assumption that they are somehow drug addicts attempting to get extra pain relief uh, that they don't need, when in fact, evidence suggests that they're in really quite remarkable levels of pain and do need that pain relief. Another example that is also slightly anecdotal that a colleague um, uh, gave me uh, recently was the notion that um, uh, all ethnic minority people are vitamin D deficient to prevent COVID. We need to give them an injection of vitamin D. Therefore, all ethnic minority people coming in through A&E should routinely get a vitamin D injection, even though the evidence that we have suggests that vitamin D is not the explanation for the high risk of mortality for minority people facing COVID. So these, these, these common sense assumptions inform our science and then inform our practice. Absolutely. And then they also, help us begin to shape di diagnoses that might fit historically. Mm. But also, also, as I've kind of implied when I was talking about severe mental illness, it also gets into our practice now. Why do we find it, um, find schizophrenia and other psychotic conditions such a common diagnosis for ethnic minority and particularly black people? Um, why is it the appropriate diagnosis, even though surveys suggest that their psychotic experiences are much um, much less common than the rate of diagnosis. So since, since, you, since you touched a bit, you know, on COVID, not, not a bit, a lot about COVID, now the, the Greater London Authority, at some point, uh, they've 
they've commissioned the University of Manchester, correct me if I'm wrong, to conduct a rapid evidence review to document and understand the impact of COVID-19 of those with protected characteristics, as well as those living in poorer or more, let's say, precarious socioeconomic circumstances. But particularly, you were asked to look into London. So, so what did you find? Yeah, so, so we were asked to look into London. So, so we did this work um, in spring, early summer last year. Um, and it was an evidence review, so we didn't do any primary research, but we did it in conjunction with an NGO in London called the Obele Foundation. And so they were able to collate a lot of on-the-ground experiences that we then combined with our review of the evidence. Um, we, we focused on a number of issues, and, I, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but I guess our primary finding was that inequality had not been a focus of research or policy action. So it was really a very bereft field. Um, the data, the policy were not present. Um, so there was very little to say in terms of robust scientific evidence uh, in the UK. And that situation has shifted a little bit since um, summer, but it hasn't shifted dramatically. Uh, what's crucial is that a whole set of campaigning organisations have raised the voices of uh, people experiencing inequality in relation to COVID. And that has been crucially important in terms of people having to think carefully about policy. What did we find? So, so, so we looked at things like age, um, socioeconomic position, ethnicity, religion, gender, uh, sexuality, sexual orientation, sexual identity, disability, uh, and so on. And what we found was that each of these groups faced significant inequalities. The nature of that inequality, of course, related to the forms of disadvantage that they had. So to give two contrasting examples, in terms of race and ethnicity, there was a clear inequality in terms of mortality, but also clear inequalities in terms of the socioeconomic impacts of lockdown. In terms of gender and sexual identity, what lockdown did was expose people to within household abuse. Um, and this is, you know, this is crucially important, of course. And so the ways in which these things played out were different for each group because of the different disadvantages that they face. But it's clear that disadvantaged groups faced aggravated harms uh, in terms of both health and in terms of the consequences of lockdown um, from the pandemic. The message is that if we're going to produce policy in relation to managing a pandemic, think very carefully about how you are amplifying inequalities or not. Sorry, this that was really, a point, but it, This is really interesting you mentioned that, because, you know, there was a paper by Laura Flores at JAMA Network Open, and they report that in a cross-sectional study among US-based vaccine clinical trials, members of racial and ethnic minority groups and older adults were underrepresented. And actually, Prof. David Leslie, the BMJ, wrote about the use of artificial intelligence in tackling the pandemic. And he suggests that patterns of systemic health inequity and bias will enter these artificial intelligence systems and subject disadvantaged communities to increasingly disproportionate harm, rendering what he says uh, artificial intelligence to mean augmenting inequality. Yeah, yeah. So that comes back to um, your earlier point, I think, about uh, the harms that science does and the harms of a uh, blink of science. You know, you, you make the assumption about what these things mean and then you program your artificial intelligence or simulation models whatever to follow those assumptions and then you get results that potentially reinforce those negative uh, stereotypes so so i mean i think vaccine rollout is, is a really interesting example you have the joint committee on vaccines making decisions about how the covid19 vaccine rollout should happen they think about the practicalities of that and they think 
okay, the easiest way to do this is to do it by age. Age is a clear predictor of risk. Let's do it by age because that's a straightforward to implement and minimizes or maximizes benefits as far as it can go, but it does nothing to minimize inequality. What it does is potentially amplify inequality. So coming back to the biological argument, um, it's clear that in terms of biological age, because of the weathering process of stress, ethnic minority people have an older biological age than white people on average. And so then if you're going to take age as your driver, then you miss all of that process. Uh, and then ethnic minority, not quite so old chronologically, but just as old biologically, people do not get the vaccine. So then if you think about that in terms of science and policy, you think, what is the solution to that? And there are obvious and straightforward solutions. You could vaccinate by area, choosing areas with high rates of mortality. Mm -hmm. Do age standardized area-based mortality rates and goes to those areas with the highest rates of mortality, and then you can still implement by age and so on. But what you do is you end up targeting those areas where people are at most risk of dying. And those people within those areas are at most risk of dying. Of course, we should have done that, in my view, this is my view, of course, we should have done that at the beginning of the vaccine rollout. It's now a bit too late to do it. But next time around, these are the lessons that we should learn. So, 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 Prof, slightly paraphrasing uh, Sridhar Venkatapuram of his book Health Justice, who I interviewed around a year ago, and we talked about the ethics of the pandemic. So, he was saying that the capability to have good mental health needs to be recognized as a basic moral entitlement in the same way as other fundamental human rights. So, how far do you think are we from making this happen? Well, I, I suppose I do approach this from an inequalities angle. And what I see is the, and of course, a basic human needs approach should be approached from a inequalities angle as well, even though it's not always done so. I, I argue that it should be. Um, uh, so if we make, if we think about that in terms of mental health and the inequality distribution of uh, good mental health, then I would argue that we're a long way away and we need to think both about the drivers of poor mental health so the social and environmental factors that drive poor mental health and begin to think about what we can do to address that. But as, again, coming back to one of your earlier points, we need to think about the services that are available. To focus on access to therapeutic services for people who are facing inequality. And therapeutic services, I mean the whole set of additional services that go over and above treatment with uh, medication um, or go beyond treatment with medication. How do we get good therapy to people facing inequalities and suffering poor mental health. But Prof, let's finish on a light note, you know, and bring another layer of uh, fun in the equation. Plus, you have 30 seconds to answer that. Okay, okay. 30 seconds, maybe, maybe I'm too hard, maybe I'm too hard, 45 <laughs> seconds. So how can we open and honest and talk about racism in a country that perpetuates a caste system that essentially is monarchy? Yeah, so, so I would argue, of course, that this is a class system rather than a caste system. I think there, there are distinctions between the two. So a class system driven by access to wealth, which then shapes power along with other resources. Um, and, uh, you know, these class inequalities sit alongside the ethnic inequalities. They amplify each other and they're also used to distract from each other as well. So 
when we talk about ethnic inequalities, we're reminded of the poor white working class. When we talk about class inequalities, we're reminded that there are these ethnic inequalities that need to be addressed. And so I, I think what we need to do is to have a system that focuses on different, in my terms, modes of oppression, different dimensions of inequality, uh, be that class, ethnicity, gender, whatever that might be, understands how they operate and begins to address them uh, jointly as well as separately. So it is um, trying to deal with that together. What does that mean in terms of a monarchy? Of course, we could be drawn into a debate about how the monarchy amplifies class inequality, symbolizes class inequality. I think that's a crucial debate to have in our class-based society. Amazing, amazing. Greatest people, Professor James Nagel, thank you so much, Prof. Thank you. you. Thank you. Really compelling point about inequalities in mental health and how we all need to work together to stop perpetuating this. Next week, we leave the grey skies of the UK and cross the Atlantic for the warm climate of Jacksonville in Florida. There we find a star of dementia research, Dr. Melissa Murray, an associate professor of neuroscience at Mayo Clinic with nearly 200 publications as she investigates the individuality of Alzheimer's disease and there are typical presentations. But until then, Postpo and Braincast for most of the learning, over and out.